ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tēnei. He konai i pirangi tēnei e pa ana ki ngā Sounds of Science. Every episode, we talk about work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Hello to you all. I'm very excited to welcome to the show freshwater expert Nixie Body. Kia ora, Nixie. Kia ora, Erica. Nixie is passionate about all things freshwater, big and small, and sometimes the things you expect to be small, which are actually really big. Among other things, Nixie is the go-to person in our office for incredible hiking hacks and is always very busy. I think the last time we tried to get her on this podcast, she was rushing off to the subantarctic islands, so we are very fortunate to have her here today. Nixie, would you like to introduce yourself to our wonderful listeners? Tēnā tato, ko Nixie body tāku ingoa, kei te papa atawai o he mahiana. It's so nice to be here today. Thanks for coming on the pod. So tell me a bit about your role at uh, Te Papa Atawai at DOC. Yeah, so I'm a freshwater science advisor leading the Critical Ecosystem Pressures Research Program. So in simple terms, my job is to do research to help fill some critical knowledge gaps to help DOC with its advocacy and conservation of our native freshwater fish and ecosystems. Very cool. And what's your background? So I have been a lover of freshwater my whole life. My dad was a hydrology technician and my mum was a biology technician, so I guess you could say I was born into it. And my name, Nixie, means freshwater spirit in German mythology. <laughs> oh, that's so but cool. I've, I've been passionate about rivers and oceans for a long time. <laughs> um, wow, you really were led straight into this. There was no other option. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But yeah, I studied at the University of Canterbury in my hometown. And I've been lucky enough to to stay here and, and get a job at DOC. Oh, we're so lucky to have you. So for, for freshwater newbies, aka me, uh, can you give us the definition that you and your team use for freshwater? Yeah, so this is anything, you know, lakes, rivers, wetlands. Um, we have to interact with our marine colleagues when we're getting into the brackish water. Um, but often people don't think about subsurface water. So there's there's water underground as well that we have we have to look after too. Of course, I did not consider that. So Nixie, tell us about your passion, which I think is galaxids. Firstly, what are they? And secondly, why do you think they're cool? Oh, there's a thousand reasons why I think they're cool. They're a family of freshwater fish found only in the Southern Hemisphere. And they were named galaxids after this pattern of like golden and white flecks that they have across their backs, which are reminiscent of the, the night sky. I guess a rather romantic vision of the early explorers. <laughs> Beautiful. And they make up around 65% of our native fish in, in New Zealand. Freshwater fish, that is. Okay, and, and there are different types, aren't there? There's like the dusky galaxid and a few different ones. Is there one that specifically looks like the night sky or do they all? Generally, they all do, yeah. And the other thing that makes them really special is that they don't have any scales at all. So when you're handling them, you need to have wet hands to make sure you don't damage their skin, but they f they feel really wonderful and velvety oh. um, when you're handling them. But broadly, you can split them into two groups, those that migrate to and from the sea as part of their life cycle, and they make up five out of the six species in the whitebait catch. Um, and we also have non-migratory galaxids that live their entire lives in the freshwater environments, and, and I specialise in the ones that live their whole lives up in the mountains. A strategic move because I love mountains. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. And, and how endangered are they? 
vary. So we have uh, 78 species of freshwater fish in New Zealand, of which 51 are native. And I say currently we have 78 species because we've got ongoing genetic work. We might have up to 13 more galaxid species to add to the list. But of those fish we have, 78% are threatened and one's extinct. So it's, it's pretty dire. And when you say that there are um, 13 more, it's like someone has, has found one of them that doesn't quite look like the other ones. And so you're, you're working on that? It's mostly genetics work, actually. Um, it's the non-migratory galaxids that are very cryptic and they, they all look quite similar to each other. And actually what's caused most of the speciation and why we have so many different species is mountain uplift events. So we have such a young uh, landmass here in New Zealand that all the geological movements are splitting catchments into so they flow in different directions and those fish are, are deviating genetically and becoming different species. Ah, oh, so they're going up to the mountains, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Tell me, tell me about the threats to galaxids. Why are they endangered? So the main things that are threatening them is habitat loss. So we've lost 90% of our wetlands in New Zealand and a a huge proportion of our smaller streams and rivers. So these, sometimes they're drained, sometimes they're piped or channelized. Um, and we also have barriers to fish migration. For example, every time a road crosses a waterway, it's either on a bridge or the river gets put through a culvert, which is like those circular pipes that run under the road. And often the water flowing through there is quite shallow and fast, and it is a barrier to our native fish that, that can't burst swim for long enough they're not, they're not Michael Phelps, unfortunately, <laughs> and they, they can't make it up through these, these barriers. Um, and, you know, we also have issues with pollution and sedimentation from land clearing, industry and agriculture, um, and a lot of issues with introduced species. So when you say when you put in a fish passage, is it like a little slide that they can go up? So the one we're um, doing some research on at the moment is actually installing baffles, which are are kind of like a set of bricks in the culvert to help slow down the water and create little eddies and pools for the fish to rest in oh. so they can work their way up slowly. And we're also adding ramps to the tail end of the culvert so the water, so they can climb up because sometimes it's just a drop out the end of the pipe. Ooh, okay. And and which introduced species are creating, um, causing the most havoc, do you reckon? So it depends on which part of the country you're in is the, is the honest answer. Um, in the Waikato, for instance, about 80% of the fish biomass, so that's like kilograms of fish in the river, is koi carp. So huge problem there with them disturbing sediment and, and destroying native plants. Mm. But the non-migratory galaxids that I specialise in, uh, their main predator is introduced trout, and it's causing huge decreases in both the population size and the distribution of our native fish. So we know trout are like an apex predator in the waterways. What is it that makes them such a threat to galaxids? So in fish ecology, we have a thing called the gape size hypothesis. So this is an idea that if fish don't have hands right, so if they want to eat something, they need it to come into their mouth in one go. So you can imagine swimming up a river and there's hamburgers or chicken nuggets floating past. You're going to be aiming for the chicken nuggets, right? Like you're not going to be able to get a hamburger in one go. And if you're... A trout, once you're 15 centimetres long, you can fit even the adult non-migratory galaxids, which are only seven centimetres long, into your mouth in one go. So they, they exert a really strong predation pressure. And some science that's been done shows that an adult trout can eat, eat up to 135 baby galaxids in a day. So it's, it's pretty serious. 
Oh, it's just like right animal in the wrong place, isn't it? Totally. And um, we've been working with Fish and Game actually to put in some positive barriers. So I was talking before about, you know, these negative impacts of, of fish barriers to migration. There can be positive ones as well. So we intentionally install barriers in some places to stop trout from, from destroying native fish populations. Or we install a barrier and remove trout from above the barrier to try and look after our, our tongue species. Oh, cool. And the places that the, the galaxid is, is the most populated. And so you give them a fighting chance. Absolutely. Yeah. But in general, much of this is where bird conservation was 60 years ago. So we've got a lot of really special, really threatened species, but we're still developing the tools to kind of help them out and help their populations persist and hopefully recover. Brilliant. What about the hydropower problem? Is that a big deal? Yeah, so um, we have a trap and transfer scheme that at many of the large dams around the country where we we catch eels that are migrating upstream and move them to above the lake. Um, and we also have fishways, which like imagine a wheelchair ramp to help fish get up and around uh, a big dam. But this is a big issue globally. In North, <laughs> North America, for example, they developed a salmon cannon so you, you put salmon in at the bottom of the dam and it fires them out a tube into the lake at the top of the dam. But globally, this is an ongoing issue that engineers and ecologists need to work together on to help solve. I'm sorry, I lost everything after Salmon Cannon. You definitely need to give it a, <laughs> give it a Google. There's some great stuff on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell me about, so we've talked about the upstream migration, but what about the downstream migration? So this is a real ongoing challenge because you can imagine if you're a fish, big or small, Getting sucked down a turbine can be very, very fatal. difficult and possibly fatal. So there's been some quite interesting research going on internationally into what size of fish get impacted by these things and what we can do about it. So, um, for instance, I went to a very comedic series of talks at a conference a couple of years ago where they had an American research team who had built a robot fish and they were putting it down turbines to try and measure the, the size of the impacts from the, the blades. But the fish got destroyed. Um, and there was a German research team that released different sizes of sausages into the river and collected them at the bottom to see which ones came out whole. And there was a Polish research team that released different sizes of vegetables. So we're, we're all having the same problem all around the world. And it's just how we solve it. <laughs> and and the tool that we are putting into the turbines as well. Absolutely. I wonder what we'd use in Aotearoa. Um, and, and do your team use environmental DNA? Yes, we do. So that's kind of an emerging tool, I would say. Um, typically, we have different tools that we use for different environments. So in really slow-flowing environments like wetlands or lakes or, or slow rivers, we use passive techniques which are like nets and traps and things like that where the fish need to swim into it so we can catch them. And in faster-flowing environments, we use things like spotlighting, um, going out at night with a head torch, which I recommend everyone in New Zealand goes out with a head torch and looks in their local river. They'll be amazed at what they find. Um, and I do a lot of electric fishing, which is a way of, of stunning the fish to collect them because they're, they're very cryptic benthic species and it's quite hard to catch some of them. But environmental DNA, which is pretty new on the scene, is a way of collecting water samples. So you're just, you're just collecting water and they run it through genetics analysis. Imagine like spitting in a tube to find out where your ancestors are from, right? Um, they, they look through the DNA in this water to tell you what species might be in the catchment. 
I just think environmental DNA is so incredible and the idea that you can tell which species are around just from water is very cool. You do need to be careful with contamination though because we had a, uh, I knew a person who was working on the west coast in a river and they had a record for some orca from the northern hemisphere <gasps> and it turns out they had sat on the plane next to a guy who had been handling orca the day before. So you do need to be really careful. <laughs> wow, and also a detective to figure that out. <laughs> like, oh, the orca guy next to me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. Now, you, you mentioned electric fishing. Can you tell us what that is and how it works? Yeah, so imagine you're out in a river, you've got your waders on, and you've got a backpack on your back, much like you'd have if you were going tramping, except for in the backpack you've got batteries. And you're holding an, an anode out the front, which is like a wand with a kind of heart shape on the end, and you're trailing a wire behind you, which is your cathode or earth wire, and the machine puts pulses of electrical current through the water to, to stun the fish so that you can scoop them up in a net, pop them in a bucket, and we can identify them, measure them, weigh them, and return them to where we got them. And this doesn't hurt the fish? No. So um, it requires some training to make sure that uh, you do it well, because you can injure the fish or uh, kill the fish in a really bad situation if you do it wrong. So different rivers have different conductivities. And you can think of like an urban river with a lot of heavy metal runoff. Um, that has a really high conductivity. So you need the, the electricity be, to be turned really low. Whereas in a, in a mountain stream, there's very little um, conductivity in the water. So you need to turn it up a lot higher. So it takes a lot of understanding of the speed of the water flowing in different environments, the depth of the water, the size of this, your target species, and also the, the metallic content to do a good job of it without injuring the fish. Wow. Okay. So all of your team are very well trained before they go out into the field. It's not like something you can oh, just absolutely. do at home, please. No, uh, definitely don't do it at home. <laughs> Nixie, can you tell me about the success rate of electrofishing? Yeah. So it's, it's very, very effective if it's done well, which is why we do it, right? Mm. Because the goal is to catch every fish that, that is in that part of the river. Um, and the reason we're only allowed to do it for science is because in other countries they've done it commercially and now you know in some parts of Asia there's lakes where there's not a single fish present so you have to be careful about who you allow to do this kind of very fishing. effective in the wrong direction got it absolutely but you often get a huge surprise as well so one day I was fishing in a tiny tributary stream of Te Waihora Lake Ellesmere and it would have been maybe 10 centimeters deep and then there was this huge commotion right <laughs> water flying everywhere and an eel that was like two and a half meters long, 30 kilos, diameter of a dinner plate, like enormous, just came flying out like a tanifa and took off down the river, completely destroying our nets. And it was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. But I got a fright every time I heard a splash for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. I, well, I feel like you gave him a fright as well, yeah? <laughs> Oh yeah. wow. Okay, so it would have it would have given a bit of a shock, but really just a wake up and then he was out of there. Yeah, yeah. So it's a situation where the, the longer a fish is, the more it's affected by electric fishing. So you need to make sure if you've got a big a big animal like that that you don't don't hold the button down too long. Well, my next question is what's the most unexpected thing you've encountered in the field? But I feel like it's a big eel ripping through your mist now. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's definitely up there. I think uh, the only other one that leaps to mind was earlier this year down in the Aparima River catchment and um, some naked bogans ran past. Uh, turns out they'd been skinny dipping in our field site. 
So you never know what you'll see on a day in the field. You certainly <laughs> don't. I hope they didn't step on any fish while they were being naked bogans. <laughs> so tell me about the freshwater fish or not fish that can swim upstream. So um, the migratory galaxids are just amazing. So I'll just give you an example of a couple that we find in the whitebait catch. And to give you an idea of like the size that we're talking about here, when they're going out to sea, my friend described it as the size of a, like a nail clipping, tiny, tiny fish. And we don't know a lot about the part of their life cycle while they're out at sea because they're so small and so hard to find. So we've mostly studied them as they've come back into the lakes and rivers. So at the smaller end of the spectrum, we have inanga, which is one of the most common ones people see with a really silvery belly. It's um, really distinguishable. They live for like a year or so and grow about 10 centimetres long. And they're the most widely distributed native freshwater fish in the world, found as far away as Australia, Chile and Argentina. And they have this really cool adaptation to stop other fish from eating their eggs, where they wait for a big high tide, like a king high tide or a spring high tide, and they lay their eggs on the vegetation hanging over the river. So as the water recedes, their eggs are safely out of the water. And then when the next flood comes through, it takes the eggs straight out to sea. And that was a great strategy before we had introduced predators like rats and, and mice and things. Um, unfortunately, that tactic doesn't work so well now. But then at the bigger end of the spectrum, we have the giant kokapu, and they're the largest galaxids in the world. Uh, the biggest ever recorded was 2.8 kgs and 580 millimetres long. So they're, they're pretty fat for their length <laughs> and so beautiful. And they can live for over 20 years, predominantly in forested streams near the coast. So they've been quite impacted by like land use change near the coast. But they're, they're definitely not what most people imagine when they see a whitebait, what it'll grow up to be. <laughs> wow. All of these different um, fish that you're, you're like giving us this wonderful profile of, if I went out with my torch at night and spotlighted in a river, would I be able to see what they are? I mean, maybe not see the 2.8 kilogram giant cockapoo, but, <laughs> but can you differentiate as like me? Yeah, absolutely you can. I think the non-migratory galaxids that I study in the high country, they look very similar between species, but the migratory species that the whitebait grow up to be look really distinctly different. So you could print yourself out an ID guide and, and absolutely go for it with your family camping in the summer. Oh, It'd be great. I see you guys <laughs> out there. <laughs> Amazing. I have an inkling, though, that your favorite of all the galaxids, Erica, might be the Coado, which is the climbing galaxid. So it uses its grippy fins to climb vertical waterfalls. All it needs is a damp surface. And it can migrate up to 400 kilometers inland, climb up to, it's been found at 1,300 meters elevation, just climbing waterfalls up into the mountains. And you really need to keep an eye on them because if, if you're out with your family and you catch one and put it in a bucket, it'll climb up the side of your bucket <laughs> and do a runner. <laughs> Oh, you need to be careful. That's so clever. So they don't need fish passages being helped for them, do they? Because they're they're one of the species that's that's really resilient uh, with the fish passage challenges. That's definitely already my favorite species. Sorry, all the other species. <laughs> um, now, what's your biggest conservation win in recent memory? I bet you've got heaps. Well, I think. Really, really up there for me was doubling the known distribution of upland longjaw galaxids in the Hopkins River. So we, we were out for a day in the field and we had really limited time and I just be, decided to spend my whole time allocation driving, like four-wheel driving upstream. And we were really lucky. We found this huge gravid female. Gravid means full of eggs. Um, 
upland longjaw. And we were just so excited. We named her Queen Madge the Fecund, <laughs> the queen of the high country. <laughs> and hopefully she'll have lots and lots of babies and keep that species healthy and strong. That is such a good win. I think uh, genuinely uh, in my work, it's actually, it's really satisfying chipping away at new knowledge in a specific area. So whether that's understanding how our non-migratory galaxids are affected by trout and climate change, both, you know, flood flows and, and droughts, um, or whether it's testing tools to help our native fish species migrate upstream through the challenges they face. I think gradually gaining knowledge over time to improve our conservation and management is is really, really satisfying. And so valuable as well. Um, that kind of brings me to things in the field not always going to plan Um can you tell me about a time when something went wrong? I actually think one of the funniest stories I have about this uh, was during my PhD. So to, to break up the kind of, I don't want to say monotony because fieldwork is really fun, but if you're doing it all the time, it can be a bit monotonous. Um, I started doing fancy dress fieldwork Fridays and we would choose a different costume theme every week. And one week, uh, my field assistant, who is a delightful man, uh, he had some Star Wars costumes. So I was dressed as Boba Fett and he was dressed as a stormtrooper and we had all the electric fishing gear and we were out in the Canterbury High Country uh, electric fishing and we walked past a school group who was out there learning how to navigate and tramp and this little 10-year-old boy looked across at us and was like, they're from Star Wars. <laughs> and then I was like, we have to keep a business face now. Like we can't crack up and laugh. You know, we're saving the galaxy and the galaxies oh, today. So much responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Did you ever do, because they look a bit like Ghostbuster, you know, vacuum cleaners. Did you ever do Ghostbusters? We haven't, no. Okay. But we, you know, we dressed up as um, the different New Zealand blacks and whites for the Cricket World Cup. We dressed up in full stripes for earning our stripes as scientists. And as superheroes, we had Superman and Thor and... <laughs> We got a giggle out of the public for sure. <laughs> I bet. You've seen climbing galaxids climb up walls, out of buckets. What's the weirdest thing that you've seen a species do? I think some of the, the coolest and weirdest species we have are the lamprey, right? These are kanakana lamprey. They're prehistoric fish, 360 million years old. They were around when we had dinosaurs in New Zealand. Like they're incredibly ancient. They've got no jaws. They've got no bones. They're basically just like a, a round mouth full of teeth. Um, and they suck their way up waterfalls. Like imagine like a plunger, right? Like they, <laughs> they use like a vacuum to suck their way up waterfalls. They're absolutely wild creatures. But they're, they're a Taonga and Mahinga Kai species that's nationally vulnerable around the country. Um, and it takes nine years for them to complete their wild life cycle. So like the little, the little guys, they grow up in sandy bars and rivers and, and come out of the sand at night to feed. And then they head out to sea when they're a bit older for several years and they're parasitic and they attach themselves to fish and sharks and whales and just live off their bodily juices, <laughs> which is never something you should ever say out loud. And then when they're ready, they turn this like amazing electric blue color and then they come back into the rivers and migrate sometimes hundreds of kilometers upstream before they burrow into a hole in the riverbank or under a large rock. And then they don't eat for 12 to 18 months. They just hang out with their friends. And then they emerge and breed in a rocky nest 
and then die. So it's an incredibly dramatic life cycle. They're incredible creatures. Nature. That might be my favorite new species. And I've seen a video of one where someone's got one on their arm and they're like just yeah, yeah. like a plunger, but a life-sucking plunger. Suctioned on there. Yeah. <laughs> So now we have a new section, which I'm very excited about, which is um, questions from listeners. We asked on our Instagram for people's questions and got so many responses. One of them is, what kinds of damage are the invasive golden mussels causing? So these are these golden clams, they're really new additions to the, the New Zealand environment. We only discovered them earlier this year. And what they can do is they they are very effective at breeding and colonizing new places and they can just take over environments. So they'll they'll smother the whole surface of the waterway. And that is really bad for things like the kakahi, our freshwater mussels, and also for coda and, and our other large invertebrates that need to live in those places. Oh man, and they're already having a, a difficult time as it is. So how how do you think golden clams got into New Zealand? So the, the leading theory so far is that they came in in the bilge tanks of wakeboarding boats. So you have to empty your bilge tanks before you go between waterways. But um, it's very hard to completely empty them and it's impossible to check them. So bilge tanks generally are like when you're, when you're transporting often freight around the place or the freighting boats have, have bilge tanks. When they're empty of their load, they take on water to, to stabilise the boat and when they get to their destination, they let the water out, right? Yeah. And take take the load back on. So so bilge water has historically been a huge way to spread um, invasive organisms around the country and around the world. Gosh, it really shows you the importance of biosecurity, hey? Hugely, because like, yeah, these golden clams, they've never been removed from a place they're invaded. So it's a very serious tackle, like um, thing for us to tackle in the next few years. Uh, someone wanted to know if, ooh, let's do this word, eutrophication, excess nutrients, is that causing an issue in freshwater lakes and how do we deal with that? Yes, so eutrophication is, is <laughs> excessive nutrients, absolutely. Um, and there's a few ways they get into the system. So I think the typical way everyone thinks of is from industry or from agriculture, particularly nitrogen and phosphorus, which are the main limiting nutrients in freshwater ecosystems. And they often cause uh, toxic algal blooms, which are really bad, mm -hmm. um, or they can be beyond the the tolerances of our native species. So they just don't do very well, or they they can't live there anymore. Um, but we also get some some eutrophication problems from really surprising sources. So, for example, volcanic soil is really high in phosphorus. So if you have land clearance for you know forestry or subdivisions or anything near a waterway in a volcanic region. A lot of phosphorus can get into the waterways and cause cause huge problems. But we've also had places where we've had really unintended impacts of eutrophication, where, for example, there's a lake in the North Island where they built a predator-proof fence around it to try and, you know, get the, the ecosystem thriving and doing really well. But without the predators, the birds went crazy. Not our native birds, like ducks, oh. Canadian geese, sparrows, all sorts of things. And there was so much bird poo that the nutrients turned the lake eutrophic. You know, the best of intentions cannot always land where you expect them to, <laughs> but it's a major issue in freshwater systems. Wow, I don't know who saw that coming. Um, what types <laughs> What types of macroinvertebrate sampling do you do? I do very little, um, but it's a really 
macroinvertebrates, which are like the large bugs that live in freshwater streams, often the juvenile stages of bugs that will have the adults will fly and get eaten by spiders and birds and all sorts of things. Um, but there's a really wide array of tolerances in our, our macroinvertebrates. So some of them, like snails and worms, are very tolerant of high levels of sediment and um, nutrients. So they'll they'll survive in really degraded systems. And others, like mayflies and stoneflies, they're really sensitive. So you'll only find them in really pristine systems. So sampling macroinvertebrates is a way we can gauge the ecosystem health in different places. I am loving this Ask an Expert. What? Oh, we also got questions about freshwater leeches and jellyfish. Do we have those in Aotearoa? We do have freshwater leeches. Um, as far as I know, I've never met anybody that's ever been bitten by one. There's lots of leeches that don't attach to people. So I wouldn't worry about it. Um, and I've not heard of us having any freshwater jellyfish, but, you know, there's, it's a big world out there. <laughs> Maybe someone will find one. <laughs> so much still to discover. Now, this is a big one and one that we get often. Does using poison for pest control affect water quality? The short answer is no, not as far as we know. So it's biodegradable, it breaks down really quickly, and from the testing that has been done, there's been no effects on fish. But I think it's worth mentioning briefly that pest control is really advantageous for freshwater ecosystems. So not only do the rats and the stoats they eat freshwater coda, the freshwater crayfish. Um, they eat the eggs of fish. They eat whole fish. Um, but also, on the flip side, they provide prey for some of our introduced fish. So, for example, mice often swim across rivers when they're trying to get to new habitats, and the trout love to eat them. So if you have a beach master event and there's a huge number of mice around, the trout get really, really big. And we were talking about the gape size hypothesis before, and how if you have a bigger predator, they exert a larger impact in these kind of systems. A big Making a trout really big from a mouse plague is really dangerous for the freshwater ecosystem it lives within. So it's, it's very beneficial within the freshwater ecosystem for the pest numbers to remain low. For people interested in learning more about that topic, we have a load of research on our website, doc.gov.nz, so you can check it out. Now we have a rapid round. Tar listeners, do kokapu have scales? No, as discussed before, we have several species of kokapu in New Zealand and none of them have scales. Are freshwater translocations common? There's a lot less recently. We have, we have to be careful when we're translocating things because we can take diseases with them, we can take pest species with them, we can take parasites with them. So we need to be quite careful that not only they're being put into the right environment where they'll do well and thrive, but that they're not bringing anything nasty with them. Can a dam lake be turned into a breeding habitat for native fish? Oof, outside my area of expertise, but I imagine it would help if it was surrounded by a bit of wetland habitat. And how do experts map the freshwater health and quality? So this is actually falling within the jurisdiction of the regional councils rather than DOC. So anything to do with water quality is, is theirs, theirs to look after. So they can they have all the mapping tools, but there's some really, really cool new development where they're using drone imagery and using different frequencies of light to, to assess water quality from aerial imagery. So the future looks really cool in that space. Uh, another thing listeners wanted to know about was whitebait. Now, Nixie, it's not your particular wheelhouse on policy and all of that. Um, if you want to know more about that, there is a lot on our website. Um, but what I can ask you is about the galaxid breeding cycle and ecosystem. 
I think one thing that people would find interesting is that the white bait species don't return to their home stream, unlike a lot of other migratory species we have around the world, like salmon. So it means we're doing a lot of work to try and understand for a particular, you know, area that's that people are doing white baiting in or a particular area we're trying to protect white bait populations. We need to figure out where the babies are coming from, right? So we're finding different areas of the country are kind of working like a big whirlpool and the babies are kind of being being moved from one area to another. And we need to make sure that we're identifying and protecting those kind of source populations that might be feeding a much larger region. Habitat loss is one of the biggest challenges freshwater fish around New Zealand are facing, regardless of species. Um, And this is certainly true of whitebait. So the best thing that people out there that are passionate about whitebait can do is if you have any land that borders a waterway or there's, you know, a community land or, or land that your friend owns, if you can make sure that's planted up with native plants, ideally, anything that droops into the water is good. Even if it's grass, don't mow right down to the edge or maybe try and fence the animals so they don't get right down to the edge. So there is that vegetation for the adults to lay the eggs on because if they haven't got anything to lay the eggs on, they can't complete their life cycle. Oh. So that would be that, that would be my plug of something that people that care about whitebait can do. That's all from listeners for now. We didn't get to everything and some stuff is a whole new topic. Um, if you have topics, tell us in the comments when we launch this episode. Thank you so much for writing in. Now, Nixie, you work in remote mountains, which just sounds like the best job in the world. What is your, you must have many, hack item or essential item that you take with you when you're working in the field? Well, the practical answer to this is polarized sunglasses because it makes it so much easier to see into the water, which is, you know, what you need to to do when you're trying to catch some fish, which what's essentially a sieve attached to the end of a broom handle. Um but the honest answer for me is when we've got, we do really long days work when we're in the field because it takes a lot of time and resource to get out there. So you want to make the most of it. So so the real best things to take are lots of really tasty snacks and a great playlist. And this year I discovered a few new songs uh, oh. that I've been really enjoying. Fish fish songs, of course. Fish one of them's called fi- One of them's called Fishing in the Dark. Uh, very like American country, country singing vibe. And the other one's called Waders. And the main line of the chorus is, I love my woman with their waders on, which is something I think we can all get behind. <laughs> but it's great for keeping up morale when it's cold and dark. <laughs> oh, and do you have a, a fishing playlist as well? Do you have like a, what's it called? Is it on Spotify? Can we find it? My colleague's got a better one than I do, but we're looking to expand it. So any listeners out there, if you've got musical talent, we would love to have some songs about our native fish to listen to. <laughs> and we should have them. It shouldn't just be America that gets them. We can, we've got amazing fish. And amazing musicians, yeah. And amazing musicians. <laughs> Put them together. Um, and what's something about nature that just blew your mind when you learned it? So I think one of my favorite species uh, – because of its characteristics, is the panoko or torrent fish. And I could not believe that an F1 car and a native freshwater fish in New Zealand could have so much in common. So this the, the panoko is a relative of the blue cod, but it only lives in freshwater environments. Um, it migrates to and from the sea. And it specializes in really fast flowing rivers. And it uses its F1 car body shape. So it has a really slanted head. And it has these fins that are angles, so the water flowing across it 
produces downforce the same way that the spoilers on an F1 car produce downforce to stick it to the bed of the river. So it can put in no effort and, and stay stuck to the ground in this really fast flowing environment. That is a very cool fish. I think that's the only fish that could get me into car racing. Sounds cooler <laughs> than that. Wow. And, and thinking back to your first ever day on the job, what advice would you give young Nixie? I think the, the biggest thing that I've learned is that conservation isn't a matter of knowledge, whether that be scientific knowledge or mataranga, but it's a social and political process. So networking and communicating science is really, really important to actually get the information that we're learning and generating out there so that decision makers and the public can understand it and use it so that we can really make things happen. So people care about things like the kākāpō and the fio. Why should people care about random fish that they never see just as much as um, as the, the others that are more profiled? Well, I'm obviously the most biased person you could possibly ask, but I'm hoping just what I've talked about in this interview will inspire people to care more about them. They have this incredible array of traits and adaptations to their environment. Um, I think one thing I haven't touched on yet is one of the reasons why I love and study non-migratory galaxids is that they've got less vertebrae than other fish. So it means they're more flexible. And so you can burrow down in, into the gravels and sediments and it means they can live in these really extreme environments where you have droughts and you have floods and they've found these fish eggs up to 25 centimetres down into the gravels. So they just, our native fish are amazing. They're so well adapted to their environment, um, but they're struggling because they're getting all these extra pressures, be that from introduced species, land use change, climate change. It's, it's all making it a lot more challenging for them. Is that um, how the Canterbury mudfish survives as well? Do you know much about the mudfish? I know a little bit about the mudfish. Um, they're incredible animals. So the galaxids, they're, they're what part of the galaxid family. So they don't have, they just have skin. They don't have scales. And as long as they stay moist, they can breathe across their skin. So it means they can survive dry periods. They just burrow into a muddy bank, and they can they they lay belly up, and they can they can take up oxygen across their bellies. But um, mudfish are amazing as well in that they, again, they, they have less vertebrae too. They're really good at burrowing. And we did this amazing work on the West Coast with the brown mudfish, and we found that they're moving through the substrate of the forest floor. So it's so wet over there and everything is so drenched that as a trial, we dug a hole in the forest floor and put a fish trap in it and we caught a fish. <gasps> so there's, if you have these pools in the forest and you tag fish, you'll find them in a different pool. It's just incredible. Oh my gosh, so they're like tunnelling under the Yeah, yes. They're so well adapted to where they're living. And I hear you've also got a whole hoist of awesome muscle facts. Would you like to regale us with some of those? Yeah, so the kākahi, well, there's many, many Māori names for the kākahi, but that's one of them. They're the New Zealand freshwater mussels. There's three species, um, and they have a really cool life history where they need the babies to attach themselves to fish. So that's both for, they work as, they operate as parasites, so they live for a while there. And it's also the fish is how they move. So they attach themselves to a fish, it'd be like getting on the bus, and they move upstream or downstream, and they jump off and, and live in a nice... Fish house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a public transportation system. So as we're losing a lot of our native fish species, it's of course impacting the freshwater mussels, the kākahi, um, which are really prized mahingakai species. But... Um, we don't know a huge amount about our native mussels. We do know that a huge 
an interesting part of their life cycle is how you convince a fish to get infected with your babies, right? So there's one of our, our rarer species in New Zealand. We have three. And they, they release a lure, which is basically like a, a weird bag, mucusy bag that looks a bit like a drifting freshwater invertebrate and it's full of babies. So when the fish bites into it, it just explodes in its face. Whoa. But there's there's some amazing strategies on the freshwater mussels overseas. Some of them some of them open themselves up and it, they so the fish kind of swim in thinking they get, it's dead and that they can have a snack. And then they close, trapping oh. the fish's head and explode babies into the fish's face before releasing it. Um, so there's lots and lots of different tactics. Some of them actually get up onto the banks and they angle themselves out of the water and fire water filled with their babies out into the current so that the fish think it's an invertebrate or something falling into the river and eat it. So they're just the most amazing animals and you should definitely interview someone who's more of an expert and do a whole episode on them. They're incredible. <laughs> I just want 20 more minutes of this. I think how to convince a fish to get infected with your babies was not on my 2023 bucket list. So thank you. <laughs> Very much for that. Nature, it's gross and amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you can imagine in terms of the persistence of important species like this, they're reliant on the fish, absolutely, yes. as part of their life cycle. And most of the species can't use non-native fish the same way they use the, the native ones they've adapted with. And if you have a fish passage barrier, it's stopping them from dispersing upstream. So you might have a population of mussels, but there might be no new recruits coming in because no fish are bringing them back in. And and what can everyday people do to help freshwater conservation? Well, I think apart from the the you know planting up your riparian zones and making sure that they're not they're not mown or grazed is a is a huge thing people can do. But honestly, I think the best thing is tell your favorite stories to your your best friends, your neighbors, random people in the supermarket, anybody, and and try and actually go out at night with a spotlight sometime, have a look at our native fish and and be passionate, spread the word because it's only with the public groundswell of interest and support that we can really make a difference for these guys. Absolutely. There are so many stories just in the last five minutes that I will be regaling at barbecues. I cannot wait to talk about <laughs> exploding babies into people's face. Um, that brings us to the end. Nixie Body, thank you so much for your time exploring the world of the freshwater ecosystem with us. I have no doubt that you've piqued interest for our listeners who will be looking into all of these different species. Um, as we speak. Thank you again. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Erica Wilkinson, and this has been the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can stream it off our website, doc.govt.nz. This show is produced by Jane Ramage with editing by Lucy Hollyoak. If you enjoyed this episode, show us some love with a five-star rating.